So check out the passage, John 21, verses 1 through 19. Um, And so let's just start with God's word. Verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, it's a great nickname, uh, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. <laughs> and they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to him, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it, and now now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Uh, That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. I don't think he was naked, guys. Okay. Um, he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught, you've just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of the large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for your word. Um, You give it to us because you love us. Um, Lord, thank you for speaking. Uh, And I pray now that we would be um, not distracted, that we would listen for your spirit, that we would see truth, uh, that we would um, see the grace of Jesus. Uh, I pray in his name. Amen. Um, all right, so any, are any Pandora fans out there? Right, I know Pandora is like so 2008. Okay, I get it. Like, I get it. Um, but if any of you listen to stations on Pandora, I have tons of them. Uh, all kinds, everything from like Bob Seger to Plan B. Anyway, uh, if you listen to a station uh, like of Monsters and Men, anybody? Or there's a Seattle band called The Head and the Heart, really good band. If you listen to their stations, at some point, you're going to hear a vocalist named Lana Del Rey. Anybody? Mm-hmm. All right, so she kind of... She's kind of recently kind of come on the scene, and she's like this retro, 60s kind of sounding pop. Some of her stuff can be kind of dark, 
You know, psychedelic, bizarre. Um, her most popular song is probably Summertime Sadness. But she's got another song, which is probably the second most popular song. It's called Young and Beautiful. Uh, it's a great song. And in it, if you listen to the song, she has this one question that she repeats a number of times where she asks, will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? And then she goes on, she goes, I know you will. I know I'm going to sing it for you. I know you will. But what's fascinating is she says, I know you will. And then she goes, but will you still love me when I'm no longer beautiful? In fact, what I think is amazing about the song is that's the way the song ends. The song ends asking that question, will you still love me when I'm no longer beautiful? And um, I think we're all asking questions like that. I think that's why we connect to songs like that. Uh, I think we're, in one way or another, we have all asked some sort of question like this. It just kind of inside of us, right? Deep down, somewhere in our soul or bones, we've asked this question. We all at some point wonder, will someone love me when I'm unattractive? Like, will someone love me when they see some ugly part of my life? Like, will they love me when I fail? Uh, when I'm weak? When I have nothing to offer? Um, and those of you that are in relationships, I know some of you are, um, those of you who are in relationships, like, you know, you know the fear of being found out. Like, you do. It's like you, you're hiding stuff. Don't, it's okay. We all do it. Uh, it's not okay, actually, but we all do it. Um, you know, we, we, we don't want to be, like, we spend tons of time kind of hiding weakness and failure and, and just kind of, like, those areas of our life that we think are ugly. Like, we really do. We, we don't want people to see that. Do we? I, I don't know about you, I don't. Uh, like, we don't want people to see it. Here's the thing. You don't have to be in a relationship to understand that question, to understand that deep longing that she's kind of getting at through those questions. Um, some of you, I mean, I know in a room this big, this many people, some of you have experienced great pain because, you know, maybe it was your parent, maybe it was both of your parents, like, they, you know this. Like, they only loved you when you were beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you were weak, when you failed, when you weren't put together, when there was some area of your life that was just ugly. You know what I'm talking about? Um, it could be grades. It could be your room. I don't know. Um, but there's some area of your life that was ugly. Like, you knew they didn't love you. And you felt like you, you know what I'm talking about. Like you've experienced this. Uh, we, I think we all have. And so when Lana Del Rey asks, will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? Like she's asking a deep fundamental question for all of humanity. You know, will someone still love me when I am unattractive? And not just like physically, I'm talking like character, like they see some area of your life. When I'm unattractive, when I'm unable to contribute anything, will they love me? And what we're going to see in this passage is um, Peter's probably wrestling with that same question. Why he's fishing? Um, And what he learns, what he gets, 
the answer he hears to that kind of question is yes. Like Jesus will love you when you're no longer young and beautiful, when you have nothing to offer, when you have nothing to contribute uh, in all your weakness and failure. Uh, so Peter, in this passage, he's kind of, I mean, he's at rock bottom. I mean, he's, le- he's kind of living uh, with the reality of being a complete failure. If you were here last week, you know, we looked at a passage where Peter just bombed. Like, he failed miserably. Uh, and, it's, and it's in this place where Peter's at that Jesus comes. Like, Jesus comes and, like, meets him uh, in that kind of lonely, desperate spot. And so here's what I want to do tonight. I want to ask two questions, kind of this passage uh, one is, what do we learn from Jesus' resurrection? Because he's resurrected. This is like the third appearance. It's actually multiple appearances. This is like the third appearance to the disciples. Um, he's been resurrected. like raised from the dead. Um, and so what do we learn from Jesus' resurrection? Have, and let's start out with this, maybe. Like, have you, I know you have. Like, especially if you've grown up around church, you ask these kind of questions. Like, have you ever wondered, what would you do if you were to meet Jesus? Like, not in, you're not in Sunday school, and you don't have to give some cheesy Sunday school answer. Like, you're being real, you know? Uh, what would you do if you were to meet Jesus? Or what would he do? Like, if he just walked in and was, like, hanging out with us. What would he do? Uh, well, we're going to kind of get an idea of what he would do in this passage. Um, the resurrected Jesus, okay, the same Jesus that you and I, if you're a Christian, you and I will see one day. We're going to see the same Jesus that we're reading about one day. Um, the resurrected Jesus does a couple of things. One, and you see this in verses 4 through 8, he affirms ordinary life. Okay? That, is, that sounds kind of weird. Um, Jesus, I mean, think about this. In verse, it starts in verse 4. I mean... Jesus shows up to work. He, he shows up to work. Notice he didn't say anything like, why aren't you guys doing something spiritual? You know, like they're fishing. Um, no, you, in verse 6, he, he actually tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. He said, he's, like, I mean, he's like, hey, let me help you out with your work. They still have no idea who this guy is yet. And then when they get to land, look at verse 12. This is unbelievable. Kind of answer that question, what would Jesus do? Look at verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. What? Like, come and have breakfast. He invites them to breakfast. Jesus has already spent time cooking them breakfast, preparing them breakfast. He spends time with the disciples around a meal, around food. Um, Like, he's hanging out with them. Like, he didn't, he didn't, like, get in their face and be like, you know, after they've had some fish, be like, okay, let's, it's time to start singing some hymns. You know, that's not what he did. Uh, he's like, why aren't you praying right now? Like, I'm in your presence, dude. You know, it was none of that kind of stuff. I mean, like, he's hanging out with them. Like, he's spending time with them. He's relating to them in a very ordinary way. Um, and, and that's what I think is so powerful, but, like, that I think is so important for you to hear and to think about is, like, God is at work when we're eating breakfast. Like, God, God is at work in ordinary things. In fact, most of your spiritual growth throughout your life will come through very ordinary means. 
It's not going to be on the mountaintops, the mountaintops, you know, those kind of highs. It's actually going to be in the day-to-day -day valley, just living life. That's actually when most of your growth is going to come. And, and so after the resurrection, Jesus cooked the disciples breakfast. And so he just kind of affirms ordinary life. You know, like, I just think that's amazing. Um, but he also does something else. He reveals an extraordinary salvation. Um, and, like, we're going to barely scratch the surface of this. Like, this is, we're going to barely touch the surface of this topic. Uh, and so if you have questions, like, come talk to me. Talk to somebody. Because um, this may be new to some of you. Uh, and that's totally fine. Uh, so in verse 12, you see Jesus invites them to breakfast. It's like a, it's a really personal invitation. I mean, Jesus not only wants to be like their Lord and Savior, like he wants to be their friend. He is their friend. It's important to know and to think about. And like he's their companion. Um, and what follows the invitation is really, really, really insightful. Look in verse 12, starting with the word now. Um, Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Like, they knew it was the Lord. And so, kind of, I mean, what's happening is like, they know, I think this is so fascinating, they know Jesus is there in reality, but also they're really honest about their doubts. Like, he's right in front of them, but yet there's still some element of uncertainty. That's unbelievable. Um... And so there, there's like this combination of doubt and belief. There's like a dance. Uh, and it actually happens in all of our lives a lot. There's this kind of dance of doubt and belief that we kind of wrestle with. And what does Jesus do on that dance floor? Like, you know, what does he do in the midst of that? He comes to them. He serves them. You see that in verse 13. I mean, like, like Jesus, in the midst of their doubt and belief and confusion and element of uncertainty, he, like he's sustaining them, like he's nourishing them, he's like encouraging them, he's caring for them, like he's not scolding, he's not condemning, he's not even trying to necessarily convince them, right? It's amazing. And so this extraordinary salvation that you see, it, it's, it's personal, like it's really personal, it's really intimate, it's, it's for imperfect people. Like, it's for imperfect people, and it has, like, really powerful implications. And you see it. Like, what's the very last thing you see um, in verse 14? It says, he, being Jesus, was raised from the dead. Whoa. Like, we're seeing, we're all like, yeah, okay, cool. Like, that's crazy. Like, that's a big deal. Um, and so, kind of, here's the implication of that. Just that little phrase. <clears throat> we don't just need Jesus to die for us. Like, and absorb the penalty we deserve, right? We need Jesus to live. Like, we need Jesus to live for us. Like, we need Jesus living right now for us. And the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, it testifies to the power of his death. You see that in places all over the Bible, like 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and one professor, I was reading some stuff on the resurrection, a guy named Robert Peterson, he kind of adds this, and I, it may be helpful. He said, it is because Jesus, our divine human representative, 
not only like it's because not only died in our place, but also lives as our champion over sin and death, right? Sin in the grave that He saves to the end. Like, like the resurrection is very much part of Him saving us. Um, and so Jesus lives for you. He's living for you right now. That's unbelievable. Like he's representing you. Like he's praying for you. He's thinking about you. He's nourishing you. He's sustaining you right now. He's alive, living for you. Um, like, and, and death did not win. Like death is not the end of his story. And death will not be the end of our story because he's our champion. Like he defeats death. Um, but the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead... Now, this is, this is going to sound... Um, this may sound crazy to you. Um, the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead also reminds us that heaven is not the end of all things. Like, heaven isn't the end of your story. Um, God's plan is not to abandon this world. Have you ever thought about that first? I mean, like... Why was Jesus like bodily resurrected? Why couldn't his spirit just kind of floated up? You know, like why, could, why, why was the body of Jesus so important? You ever thought about that? Like why? Well, I think it's because God is reminding us that his plan is not to abandon the world, not to abandon all of creation, which he made, loved, and said was very good. No, in fact, his plan is not to abandon it. It's to remake it. It's to renew it. It's to restore it. Uh, and so in various places throughout the Bible, one is like Revelation 21. God says, I'm making all things new. Right? I, like this new creation. And so like he's going to renew all of creation. And your, like, your bodies are part of creation. Uh, a really funny, like, uh, really funny story. There's a pastor who I'm friends with that says really wild things. Sometimes, most of the time, they're true. Um, but anyway, he, just to kind of startle you and kind of get you thinking, I remember one time I heard him say, he was like, hey, even if you weren't here, like Jesus would have still come and died for the trees. Like he would have still come and died for the planet. Like all of creation, like he came to save it all. I, and I think he's so crazy, but I think he makes a really good point. Um, like... God wants to restore all things, including creation, including your body. Uh, and so heaven's not the end. Uh, and so what? Like, let's get real practical. Like, we, we're thinking about he was raised from the dead. Like, why should that really, really, really encourage you? Like, why can you leave, you read a, like five words like that, and you leave here tonight with hope? And it's because of this. I have friends who have literally lost children. Okay, like, they, they died. Uh, tragically, um, and he, and that little phrase, he was raised from the dead, reminds me that those children will one day walk again. Like, they will one day walk and laugh. Right? That's what that little phrase reminds me of. It's beautiful. That's amazing. Um, I think Tolkien nailed it, for any of you. Tolkien fans, I see some of y'all shaking your heads. Like he nailed it when he said this. He said, everything that is sad in the world is going to come untrue. 
And the reason it's going to come untrue is because Jesus was raised from the dead. And that is, that is really amazing news. And so the next question, so we, I mean, like we just spent seven minutes on the resurrection, okay? So if you, you want to talk about some more, please, let's, let's do that. Uh, what do we learn from Jesus' restoration? Uh, and you see this in verses 15 through 19. Jesus shows up and restores Peter. I'm going to read this now, starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He, being Jesus, said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. Like, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. That's a, kind of a cryptic thing. It's just he's, prophesy, he's, he's prophesying Peter's death is actually what's happening right there. Um, and this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. There's a show on television, some of you may have heard of it, it's called The Walking Dead. Uh, the Walking Dead, maybe you know it. Season 5 started three weeks ago. Uh, why was, this is spoiler alert by the way, so if you get a earmuffs or whatever. Uh, why was this season's premiere of The Walking Dead maybe the most incredible episode we have ever seen? If you are a fan. The most, and I'm not being exaggerated. I'm saying I'm just, it was the most incredible episode ever. There's one word that can answer that question. And is this restoration. Restoration. Uh, in the first episode, all these relationships that had been just kind of torn apart, that you had grown to love, were restored. In one episode, three different Sets of relationships were restored at one time. It was unbelievable. Like, literally, my wife cried. Um, sorry. I mean, I was crying, too. We all cried, okay? Like, Daryl and Carol reunited, all right? Tyrese and Sasha, brother, sister. And then maybe the one that, the, the one that really tore me up. Like, I probably teared a little bit. I, just, I had company over and didn't want to, you know what I'm saying? I'm a dude. I'm tough. And so... Rick and his baby girl, Judith, he thought she was dead. So did Carl. You know what I'm talking about? Like, y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, like, they thought baby Judith was dead, but now they're all back together. And man, I'm telling you, it was the most amazing five minutes of television ever. Why? Because of restoration. Like, you, you, we long for restoration. All of us. And so did Peter. The last time we looked at Peter, he was like this complete failure, totally disowning Jesus. And now in verses 15 to 19, 
we find him <laughs> kind of just floating in a lake. Anybody ever been there? You just kind of know what's going on with your life, man. He's floating in a lake. It's crazy. Like he's, he's wondering, like he's running low on hope. I mean, he's totally empty. Doing the only thing he knows, which is fishing. And he's, what's amazing about this story is he's fishing on the same sea in the same area that he first met Jesus. And now here we are at the end, the last time he's going to be with Jesus in the same place they first met. Um, and he and his friends, they fished all night. They caught nothing. It's daybreak. And a man, about 100 yards away, tells them to, tr- to try the nets on the right side of the boat. And when they saw the catch of fish, John realized. You see it in verse 7. What's he say? It is the Lord. Like, it's Jesus. And when Peter heard him, I love this response. I mean, it's so good. He throws himself into the sea like some sort of golden retriever. I mean, like just, you know, just big, just flopping around trying to get 100 yards to the shore. It's amazing. Uh, or lab, if you prefer. Uh, Peter gets to Jesus the best and fastest way he could. Why? I mean, because, why? He had to get to Jesus because he longed for him. Like, Peter longed for restoration. Um, And so at some point, we don't know how long into the breakfast uh, or after it, Jesus, it's just like, you you know, you've all been at those dinners where things get really awkward. You know, like somebody asked the unaskable question. And they're like, you you don't ask that. Like, what? You bring that, like that friend home from college, they have no idea about the rules of the house, like things you don't talk about. And so they're like, hey, who's Uncle Bob? And then like, nobody talks about Uncle Bob. You know, like, why don't you just bring that up? Well, here we are at breakfast. We don't know how long it's been, and it's about to get awkward. Uh, Jesus asked three different times, do you love me? And it's through these painful questions. Remember, Peter, what did he do? He denied Jesus three times last week. That Jesus restores Peter. It's through these questions, because each time Peter responds, what does Jesus say? He goes, well, feed my sheep. Like he's recommissioning him. Like he's, re, like he's giving him dignity, he's giving him hope, he's restoring him. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Um, and so in this passage, a few things to highlight about restoration that I think is really important because we all long for it, we all want it. We've, some of us have experienced restoration on kind of like the cosmic spiritual level. Um, one, restoration is not without grief. Okay, you see it in verse 17. Peter was grieved. Like Peter felt real sorrow for what he had done. Um, and, and good gr- grief can be good. Like, good grief leads to repentance. Um, you know, repentance, a turning from sin to Jesus for forgiveness and mercy, right? And at one point, you, you actually see the writer in 2 Corinthians say, I, he said this, Paul, if you know Paul, he's a writer of the Bible. Um, he says, I rejoice because you were grieved into repentance. Whoa. And that's exactly what's happening here. Like true restoration to Jesus in the Christian life will involve some sort of grief. Uh, You will feel godly sorrow for what you do, what you think, what you say, what you hide. You know, like there's going to be that element. Um, And so it's not without grief. Restoration is also not without mission, right? Right? 
So Jesus tells Peter multiple times, what does he say? He says, feed my lambs. He says, tend my sheep. Okay, so he's saying to Peter, you will demonstrate your love for me by loving my people, by feeding them with his word, is kind of what he's getting at. Um, God's, like he's saying, Peter, God's people need to be fed, they need to be tended. Like, Peter, your mission is to love my people. I love the fact that it's got that possessive pronoun, my lambs, my sheep. You are his. And so, so he's like an under-shepherd. He's working for the main shepherd, right? The great shepherd. Uh, pastor, he, another way you can think about it is he's saying, Peter, pastor the church. Like, lead the church. Uh, and so, now, guess what? None of us are apostles. I don't know if you knew that. Just FYI. Uh, by the way, not an apostle. Even though we're not apostles, and, you know, maybe you will be a pastor someday, it doesn't mean, like, you don't have a mission. Um, your mission... Is, is similar. It's to love God's people, to love his world. Tim Keller, this pastor, he says, God will never call you in without sending you out. Like you, if you're a Christian, you're prim- like part of your identity is your, your own mission. Like you're participating in a grand mission to restore everything. That's amazing. Uh, and so... Think about this. We are all in mission. And right now, your mission, if you're a Christian, right? Your mission is Western is in Western Carolina University. My God's got you here. Uh, your mission is here. It's in your dorm. Scott, Walker, Blue Ridge, whatever. You're, it's at your part-time job. That's your mission, right? I mean, God sends, and think, I want you to think about this. Like, God sends you out. Like, he calls you in to mission. He sends you out so that some may return. You get that? That's a privilege. Like, you are a privileged person that you get to participate in God's mission to restore the cosmos. Um, And so the last thing is restoration is not without direction. Uh, It's real simple. I mean, it's just a really short phrase. What's the last thing Jesus says in verse 19? It is the very last two words. Follow me. So it's not what, like, it's not, like, restoration is not without direction. Like, if you want to know, like, you're restored, where do you, what do you do? Well, you follow Jesus. And, and if you, you know what that looks like. Like, you know, that's, I mean, it can be all kinds of stuff. Be a good friend. Jesus was a really good friend. The best, actually. Empty yourself. Serve your roommates, right? Pray, read the Bible, trust God, love the church, feed the poor, serve the widow. I mean, the, we could fill up this room with ways to follow Jesus. Uh, and so follow him. Like, you have a direction. Um, uh, so recently I read this story. Let's kind of pull it all together. I, hope. Uh, I read this story... Uh, it's a book titled Mortal Lessons. And in there, it's written by this guy named Richard Seltzer. He's like a doctor. And he just kind of writes about things he's seen as he's practiced medicine. He's a surgeon, actually. Um, and he tells this story about he was standing by the bed where this young woman was lying, right? 
And he's just done an operation on her face, and her mouth is, is twisted. Like, it's really twisted and distorted. And so there was, like, this tiny twig of the facial nerve. Um, you know, the one to the muscles of her mouth. Well, and during the surgery, it was severed. Um, and she's going, and like the reality is, she's going to be like this from now on. You know, and the surgeon had done everything right. He had followed uh, protocol to perfection. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor that she had in her cheek. He had to cut this little nerve, and there's no way to retouch it. He had to cut this little nerve, and so her young husband is in the room. And um, he's standing kind of on the opposite side of the bed, and, and it's interesting listening to the way this doctor describes the scene. He said that you could, like they, seen, like they were just dwelling in like this evening lamplight. This kind of, they're kind of isolated. It almost felt private, even though he was in there. And this doctor, he was sitting there looking at the situation, and he wondered to himself, like, who are these people? Because there, there was something very different about them. And, um, and so the young woman at some point asked the doctor, she goes, will my mouth always be like this? And, and the surgeon's like, yeah. Yeah, it will, actually. Um, if you've ever seen anybody with palsy, it's kind of what it looks like, stroke victim. Um, he said, yes, it will. It was because the nerve was cut. Like, I had to cut the nerve to remove the tumor. Um, and then she just kind of nods, and she's silent. She's just sitting there. And deep down, you know what she was thinking. Like, deep down, this lady was asking the same question Lana Del Rey was asking earlier. Right? When she realized, my face is going to look like this the rest of my life. She's asking, will you, she's probably thinking about her husband, will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? That's what she's thinking. Um, and so she asks, will, will I always be like this? And the husband's response blew the doctor away. Because here's what he did. He like, she asks, and she's kind of silent, and she kind of nods, and you can tell she's just thinking through it. Well, the husband starts smiling, and he says, I like it. He says, I like it. It's kind of cute. Uh, and he's kind of completely unfazed. Completely unfazed. He kind of bends over and kisses her. Will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? I mean, the question, the doctor is asking that same question. And he sees a response. And, and what's amazing about this story is it kind of connects to a deeper, more fundamental question that we all ask at some point. We all wonder in different ways, same question, will God still love us? Will God still love me when I'm blank? Fill in the blank. When I fell when I put other things before him, when I doubt, when I sin, like, will he still love me? And if there's anything we've learned from John chapter 21, the answer is yes. Like, Jesus will love you no matter what. 
Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story that reminds us that you come to save all things. Um, Even us. Um, That you delight in us. That you love us. That you are so patient with us. That you long to restore and to renew every area of our life. You love us no matter what. Lord, we struggle to believe that. And we often run to other loves less extraordinary. I pray that you would help us see. Help us know. Help us believe and trust in Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.